Hi folks, Ethan here from Literally Everything. Before we get to the episode itself that you're about to listen to, I have a, just a bit of production advice, or rather guidance, for, for the audience. Um, so the episode is about monuments and uh, idols, icons, statues, all of these representations of people that have been especially um, controversial and relevant in, in American life over this last summer and in recent years. And in the episode as a whole, Max and I look to unpack the tradition of thought and history um, in, in Western civilization around statues, monuments, icons, idols, and iconoclasm, the destruction of idols or, or icons or images. Um, but we realized in producing the episode that there was quite a bit to cover. So we ended up producing basically two episodes on this larger topic. The one that you are about to hear uh, will set up kind of the present moment where, where we are in, in American life, reflecting, of course, on the, the central issue um, of this last summer, uh, or one of the defining issues, at least, of uh, protests over racial injustice and a reckoning with um, history of American racism and ongoing uh, structural and systemic racism, and how that's played into um, the relationship to, to public monuments and into public protest. Um, so we're, we'll set that up a bit, but the bulk of the episode that you're about to hear will deal with the, the um, kind of going all the way back to the beginning and looking at uh, Judaism and Christianity and um, their understandings of idols, of um, statues, statuary, what, how does representation work, what's going on when you build one, when you see one, when you respect uh, or revere uh, an object in the world. Um, that is supposed to stand in for values, um, and what are some of the reasons that uh, historically Judaism and Christianity gave for resisting or opposing uh, icons and idols. Uh, the, I handle more of the Jewish side. Max does handles more of the Christian side. It's, of course, it's, it's much more nuanced than Jews against Christians for, but, you know, I'll use that as an explosive oversimplification to get things started. So that's what you're, what you're going to hear. And then in an episode that we're going to drop um, in some amount of time, we will deal with the contemporary moment. And so take on uh, the like larger dynamics and debates, both in terms of the history of, of monuments and statues and, um, and idols, the, the long civilizational and religious history, and also um, the status of, of representation, visual representation. And we'll, we'll bring that framework to bear on, on the present moment in the second part. So that's what you're going to hear. And we, uh, we appreciate everyone's patience. This has been quite an unusual year for everyone. And in our particular case, uh, we were releasing episodes at about a once-a-month clip um, until coronavirus, uh, right until probably it, it was like fully hitting in April, April May, um, and then this is our first episode since then. And so I first want to thank everyone for anyone who's 
ears are attuned to my voice in this moment. We very much appreciate you bearing with us. We're actually uh, undertaking some strategic planning to to have a more regular release schedule um, despite coronavirus. Our goal is once a month. Uh, we've taken a lot of feedback. We've also just you know experimented with the form a lot. And what we what we have decided is for the the product that we want to deliver, um, what the structure that works the best are long episodes. They take a long time to research and to and to develop and to give ourselves the time to to cover the type of materials we want in the in the style that that we know you love because that's why you're here. And so that ends up with kind of, you know, episodes of between an hour, hour 20. And we think that's a, a pretty good length. And, you know, we don't expect anyone to, to make that all in one go unless you're driving across the country or something. Um, so that's where we're trying to head. This episode is a, just under an hour. And so I'll also give a little pitch for some of the other episodes that we dropped earlier in the year, because it's been a little while for those who didn't. I get a chance to hear them the first time around. Um, the going backwards in time, the the last one was about epistemological uncertainty, which is means the uncertainty of knowledge that coronavirus has uh, thrust us into the situation where even the status of very basic facts and of science and the science that we all rely on and trust, it's it's very difficult to ascertain what how certain we can be in that knowledge and what is really even like the the status of knowledge in, in this world when we have this virus changing all of our lives and we have not had a lot of time as a species to understand the virus. So that's the the last one. The one before that, coincidentally, was about the, tradi- the apocalyptic tradition in Western civilization and the apocalypse. We recorded it in February and turns out, like most people who talk about the apocalypse, we were prophets who were accurate, as all prophets are. Episode before that, we dealt with anti-Semitism, and the one before that, we talked about the canon. Which so really, there's some underlying themes that um, we've been dealing with all year. The canon one having to deal with the Western canon, and you know, um, questioning it, challenging it, really kind of comes full circle back to to where we are today um, with this episode about statues. So we hope you enjoy part one of our iconoclasm episode. Without further ado. Grab this thing, let me straight trick it. Big Floyd coming through, slow candy with every time. Sip the serve, mix the wine. Got to show these boys singing dime on my grind. Got to score a brick, hallelujah, dick. True to the game, this recline bumper kid. Holler at the Ricky and I also do it. Give me my music, man, I straight screw it. Oh, that was right, simultaneous. Cool. Nailed it. All right. Well, All right, let's just go home. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Didn't piss anybody What's off up? with that. Hey, literally everything army. All the fans out there. Good evening. Good morning. Good evening, Ethan. Good, good evening, uh, Max. Up the coast. Up the coast. So since we last recorded, it's been a pretty, pretty quiet time for our country. Not much going on. Yeah. Another uh, one of those forgettable summers blends into the next. Yeah. So... Well, should we talk at all about the last episode? I mean, I heard some positive feedback. Thank you to everyone who reached out to say that our episode was awesome. I do feel <laughs> like a lot of what both of us said um, on that episode has been vindicated in various ways. So that's been, it's been interesting to see, but also very, very bad for the country. 
Um, epistemological <laughs> so, yeah. uncertainty. If you didn't, if you didn't hear the last one, uh, it had to do with uh, the uncertainty of knowledge in uh, specifically with respect to science and coronavirus. And that definitely, like, I feel like got even worse in the four or five weeks since we dropped that episode. I feel like just every city, state, county, and scientist is like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's like, we don't even know, like, the disease, it was a respiratory disease. But now it's like, no one even knows what kind of disease it is. It's like going back, back to the basics kind of square one in terms of our knowledge. And then in terms of some of the stuff that you were focusing on uh, in that episode about like the different epistemologies that like different sides of the political divide have, I mean, that has also, that problem has also exacerbated and gotten uh, much worse to the point where it's, it's almost like a binary um, between how people are understanding and dealing with this crisis. So yeah, so it is... Um, that has been going on, but, you know, right after, I can't remember, it was pretty shortly after um, we recorded last, there was the um, protest movement that arose as a result or in response to the murder of George Floyd and everything that has uh, resulted from that. Um, we don't really feel like we have much useful to say about like the core, that core issue. We're both obviously, uh, you know, in favor of the protest movement and in favor of rectifying all these injustices that maybe you can help me out here. So I'm struggling I was like, for he's words. brave, brave. Uh, yeah. He's going to handle all this whole part. No, yeah. Like, um, you know, this has been beyond overdue for years and years and years in the murder of George Floyd and the coronavirus and its disproportionate impact on uh, communities of color, particularly African-Americans, has just, there's like very little that we can add that hasn't already been intelligently said by smarter and more relevant people, but we add our voices and like ardent support of the protest movement and uh, many of its goals of like rectifying systemic racism in our society and in our politics. Yes, but so so we do want to talk tonight or in this episode about a kind of ancillary topic that has arisen. Uh, we're talking about statues being toppled in this episode. Iconoclasm kind of as, as the protests against um, police brutality and policing and the carceral state kind of swept across the globe. This actually, uh, and this kind of part of it kind of started outside of America, in fact. I think it started in England. Was Yeah, it was with, the Colston thing before any of our... I, I right. don't, it's, it was close. It, there was like a really compressed few days there. Yeah, so I mean, everything happened very, very quickly. But in my recollection, the first prominent statue to be toppled was of a some sort of figure. I don't really know that much about him, to be honest. He was uh, like a guy named a, Colston, a slave trader from a Bristol, England. Slave trader, Brist in Bristol. So he his his statue was torn down um, and thrown into the river or harbor, and uh, this kind of began a wave, a kind of spasm of iconoclasm that has taken kind of that has it's continued up until now, actually, even though we're about a month after the original act. Um, and people are kind of tearing down statues all over the country, uh, lots of different kinds of guys. Um, this is something that kind of has been um, 
this process has kind of been happening in this country for a little while now. I mean, there have been lots of these um, episodes like, having, especially having to do with Confederate Confederate monuments in in the South, also outside of the South, to be fair. There are some Confederate monuments, um, but it kind of has reached a, it reached a fever pitch and there was a lot of discourse around it. And in fact, Donald Trump made a speech at Mount Rushmore, Rushmore. which some people are talking about tearing down and made it the night before the 4th of July. And he kind of made it a kind of central plank or theme of his reelection effort, which is like fighting back against iconoclasm. So it seems like a very key uh, topic, a very hot topic. So that's what we wanted to discuss. And we have a lot of a lot of different kind of angles to look at it. Yeah like the match to, to, to light this all up of, of uh, the, the topic in iconoclasm and 4th of July weekend, Trump was saying that it's, he's in front of Mount Rushmore on, as, as Jews, we call it Arab 4th of July. Um, <laughs> he said, the protesters, quote, hate our history. They hate our values. They hate everything we prize as Americans. Um, our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Uh, Trump said Friday evening. So obviously someone else wrote that because it like had parallelism in it. Um, but mm-hmm. no, it was Stephen Miller. The, uh, it was Stephen Miller, I think. Everyone kind of assumed that Shonda for the for the Goyam. Yeah, oh, absolutely. God, the, the Shonda of all Shondas. Uh, yeah, like the, like you know, head and shoulders worst worst uh, Jew ever. Um, so, but he's talking, <laughs> and he explicitly talked about like you know this. Tear, the people trying to uh, tear down the statues and the memorials. And so what we're going to be looking at in this episode, um, you know, we're going to come back around to this contemporary moment and you know, some of what's at stake in this moment and in various debates, some of which, like Max said, have, you know, predated uh, the summer protest movement, but have definitely, um, you know, kind of the the flames have been fanned and a lot more this is a much more public and widespread conversation that is perhaps applying to a lot uh, more sites than most of the public had maybe considered heretofore yes Uh, and absolutely and that's how if i can cut in on you there i mean what we don't want to do is have this kind of granular conversation with each individual statue where it's like did this person? Did this person's statue deserve to get torn down? Did this person's statue deserve to get torn down? I mean, that's kind of what came up when, when a Ulysses S. Grant statue was torn down um, in San Francisco, actually, uh, and it's kind of like, well, okay, so he was, he was the the leader of you know Union forces, which brought which you know defeated the Confederacy and ended slavery, but at the same time. He had been a slave owner and all this kind of stuff. And do we dig in to the these people's legacies and question whether should this person, does this person deserve a monument? Does that person deserve a monument? We don't want to kind of do that because I think that everyone or most people kind of find that debate a little bit We're tiresome. trying to I'm, get you, to the, the base of the statue, you know. Yes. Uh, and not the image itself that's that's poor poor Mm -hmm. phrasing but but right we're trying to get to the base of everything here yeah exactly so we want to get into like what what does iconoclasm mean and what else do we want to talk Uh, you know what is uh there's gonna be kind of two halves so in the first half we're gonna do a lot of laying the groundwork for the 
intellectual history of iconoclasm, uh, you know, of destroying icons or idols or plastic sculptures in the world. And I'll like be talking about Judaism, Max uh, will talk about Christianity, we'll both talk about the Enlightenment. And then in the second half, we'll kind of transition to like how a lot of these legacies uh, are still in play, uh, how they are perhaps there's new chapters in, in many of these uh, long-running stories in Western civilization that are opening up right now, perhaps. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll, we'll check in with, like, some of the questions that lots of folks ask, you know, is it going too far? Like, again, not, like, statue by statue, but more in terms of, like, you know, what is the symbolic um, meaning of statues? Like, what do the protesters who want to take them down, um, you know, purport uh, to be the meaning of statues? Uh, what do, like, the like people who quote unquote want to like defend them and, and everything in between, you know, like what's the meaning of this action of either uh, tearing down a statue or even erecting one in the first place. Um, and, you know, what's at stake in, in the, in the debates that we're currently having over these monuments and statues. Yeah. And I would say uh, also like we each have kind of our own pet concerns <laughs> uh, when it comes to this whole debate and a few themes that probably each of us is going to focus on kind of thinking about and talking about. And uh, for me, um, what I want to kind of interrogate is this framing of the debate as being a kind of conflict between iconoclast, iconoclasts or iconoclasm tearing down, tearing down statues to kind of criticize history versus people who want to defend history and keep history alive. And I think that, you know, whether or not you support tearing down these statues or defending the statues, what we're going to kind of show in the first part of this podcast is that iconoclasm is part of our culture and is part of our tradition. So it is something that has meaning. It's not like something that's totally new and it, it, it is revolutionary in some sense, but it's also something that harkens back to tradition in other ways, you know, harkens back to a tradition of tearing down statues or idols that you think are bad or harmful in some way. Um, and the second kind of theme that I want to talk about and, and look at a little bit more closely is this idea that toppling statues is a symbolic act, whereas, you know, the general protest movement is trying to address material inequalities based on race in this country um, and looking at kind of the way people have understood in the past and the way people understand in the present. What is the kind of interaction between symbolism, especially the symbolism of public monuments and material conditions of inequality? And I kind of want to in- interrogate the idea that they're totally separate and there's no relationship between the two. Or if, if there is a relationship, it's just, you know, the symbolism or the symbolic is just the, the superstructure, uh, uh, which is built upon this material base. And you have a, uh, a few other concerns, which are probably more, <laughs> a little bit more, um, uh, what's the... more well read, I would say. Uh, no, it, I mean, it, it, like less relevant. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, yeah. So, I mean, like you're, um, I like pointing out a few of the binaries that, and, and I think there, it's going to be cool to sort of pick those apart a little bit. And I'm, I'm going to be along the, that ride with you. Um, and, and then, you know, part of the thing that I'm interested in. Is that the the so, like, 
this is a an explosive episode topic for me because this is sort of like at the core of all my academic work, like from my like undergrad thesis to my dissertation, almost basically everything I've ever written has revolved in some ways around the relationship between words and images. So that's like my theme. I like whatever I study Middle Eastern literature, but like comparative literature, but like my, my issue is um, like the relationship between language and text uh, and even orality on the one hand and like um, icons, images, like depict, you know, depictions on the other. And, you know, what images are and aren't, what they should and shouldn't do, uh, you know, those kinds of things that like their functions. And so to me, um, what, what I think is like an interesting uh, application of, of that larger topic in this moment is in this. So the protest, right, one of maybe an, uh, a term we could all agree is pretty you know, defining of this movement is, is anti-racism. And part of the anti-racist discourse, um, and as also with, you could even say, similar to like the Me Too discourse uh, with the patriarchy, is pointing out that we have structural biases in our society. There's structural racism, um, systemic, institutional. Th- those words, they're words that I feel like, you know, five or even you know, more years ago, you weren't hearing outside of academia. Um, And now they're like, you know, someone says systemic racism, everyone knows what they're talking about, you know, even if it's like... And it's really important, yeah. And, 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 And there's a lot of emphasis being placed on that. I remember seeing people kind of sharing stuff saying like, you don't say systematic say systemic because uh, yeah. there's a really important difference and it's kind of like yeah that kind of that terminology spreading out and disseminating in a very interesting way yeah sorry continue no totally you know it's it's on the lips of like corporate spokespeople apologists like it's on you know politicians are saying it mainstream media people are saying these terms and um to me that it, it, that's like an an amazing sea change in and of itself how it relates to this i'm going to pick the term structural um, so structural, if you trace the genealogy, the intellectual genealogy of that term, uh, it largely goes back to a movement called structuralism and post-structuralism. And the very, very beginning of structuralism was in the field of linguistics. And it sort of spread from linguistics to uh, somewhat naturally at first, you know, from linguistics to literary studies, right? How language works, how, um, you know, how language and the signs and signifying capacities of words function. Uh, but some insights that I'll get into later on were picked up by the social sciences and, um, and have kind of made their way into critiques of how our society is organized uh, in looking at our society in structural terms. So how did something that was uh, maybe originally about, I'll, I'll give you guys a word, semiotics. This is a word, I, I should be embarrassed to say this, I think, but... Um, but also proud. It was not until senior year of college that I knew what it meant. I just saw it all the time. My eyes would gloss over it. My brain would say, semiotic. You know what that is, dude. It's like about semiotics, <laughs> you know? And my brain yeah. would just kind of decide that it was okay that I didn't actually know it. And, and then I was finally told what it was that I had been working on and would work on for the next 10 years of my life, which is just signs, like S-I-G-N-S, how signs signify the relationship between a signifier and a signified, all that. 
Um, it's kind of a generalized idea about like meaning, like yeah. So like it's not just texts, but also images. Like it's kind of generalizing and abstracting from that. Yeah, yeah. like anything that uh, I was going to say repre- represents another thing, but even just like if you see like a red octagon uh, on a sign at a street, like you probably come to a stop. You know, even if you're in another country and it's like spelled differently or, you know, there's a different word on there that like bright red octagon signifies like if I'm in a car or whatever, I stop. And so, you know, our world is full of signs. Some of them signify in very straightforward ways, like a stop sign. And um, some of them, especially uh, in icons and in images and statues, signify in very complex ways. They may, it may even be deceptively simple. Uh, how they signify and what they signify. But figuring all that out uh, led some folks to come up with terms like structural, and structural has come full around to help us, you know, uh, address some of what's going on right now. So if that didn't all add up and make sense, I promise it will later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, that's going to be really interesting and helpful. For me, especially because I'm very like vague on structuralism and post-structuralism, but also I just think that people would think, you know, if you encounter the word structural in like public discourse around social issues, it it almost sounds like it sounds like something like from you know the engineering world or something. Mm-hmm. It sounds very social scientific. Yeah. So to explain how it comes actually from linguistics and literature, I think will be. Um, very revealing. But let's get into our our history of iconoclasm. So you you're going to talk about Judaism, which is basically, you know, we can say it's where the kind of western quote-unquote tradition of iconoclasm begins. I do we do want to like just kind of footnote that there was an episode in ancient Egypt um around um Aten, this, this, so like ancient Egypt was obviously like a polytheistic culture, and then there was a pharaoh named Akhenaten who kind of had a, you could say, monotheistic, he had monotheistic religious ideas and elevated the cult of Aten, um, who was like a more abstract kind of sun god above all others. Um, destroyed some, destroyed, I'm, I'm not really super clear on the, uh, on the history there, but he destroyed some icons of, of other gods. When he died, there was a reaction against that. Um, his son, Tutank Aten, changed his name to Tutankhamen, who you know from the famous, um, his famous... Um, from the Steve Martin skit. From the Steve Martin skit, exactly. Uh, from his tomb, that's the word I was looking for. I was, I was going to say grave. Um, and he, you know, there, he was the pharaoh when, the, when this reaction happens. Uh, sorry if I'm making mistakes here. But then all kind of traces of Tutank, of um, Akhenaten, the pharaoh, and the cult of Aten, the god, were like effaced and destroyed um, and erased. And so that was kind of like the er example of, of an episode of iconoclastic um, tension. Of an icon- of an iconoclastic religious kind of conflict, and um, and I'm sure that there have been other there were other cases like in classical antiquity, like with poly- polytheism of like effacing statues um, of rival religious cults or whatever. But um, I think that the key uh, the the key place to start would be in Judaism, and I think you have a lot to say about that. Me, Judaism, um, <laughs> yeah. 
because again, the, these things. Can that, you just do some basic stuff? I mean, like cover the basic stuff, like you know, in the Ten Commandments. It, Judaism is kind of famous in many ways for being an iconoclastic religion. So the Second Commandment forbids the you know depiction, uh, not just of God, but it even says like you know you shouldn't make any image of, and then it describes like kind of like all of nature, like animals or whatever, all this kind of stuff. And then there's a dramatic moment that everyone remembers from the movie and religion of while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, which it starts with, I'm the Lord, your God who took you out of Egypt, not even a commandment, just a statement. Um, and then, you know, the, the, really the first like imperative is not to make idols. And then Moses comes down and the people are worshiping this golden calf. So really hammering the point home of this, you know, conflict between uh and when I say plastic, I don't mean like plastic in the modern, like a chemical, blah, blah, blah. But plastic just, you know, is that which has been formed by human hands, right? Isn't that the, mm-hmm. the definition mm-hmm. I'm going for? Yeah. So Graven or brazen, I think, would be the key. Yeah. Yeah. So the tension between, you know, uh, man-made um, objects um, that depict or represent parts of, of our world or of other worlds even, and this God who insists that he is uh, beyond representation, can, uh, cannot be depicted, is ineffable, all these kinds of things like that, um, uh, inaccessible. And, and, and there's a lot more going on in, in the Hebrew Bible, not just the, the commandment and the golden calf, but th- that's like a famous moment. There's also in the Midrash, which is like a body of, of legends that sort of supplement the Bible that were... Um, and they uh, probably had, some of them are older than others, but most many of them were set down in writing in like the uh, late antiquity, like first, second, third century, and whatnot. Um, there's a really famous midrash legend about Abraham that the way uh, he, that his father Terach was an idol salesman, and one day he kind of thought about it and was like, I don't think that all these statues, if you could just make them out of plaster. Um, are have divine powers, and I don't think, in fact, that there's you know different differentiated divine powers like a thunder god and a you know an ocean god. I think there's there's only one god, and so he smashed all the idols in his father's workshop, according to this legend. And a lot of I remember hearing that story it, in in Sunday school. It's a very but I didn't realize it was from the midrash. That is, I was from a reform temple. We didn't get into the details. Yeah, no, totally. It's 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 like a really famous midrash. A lot of people probably assume it is in the Bible because um, it's so canonical. Uh, you know, in that image of, you know, so that's like the Greek word iconoclasm is, is that exact situation, smashing idols, you know. Um, but there's just like a lot of other stuff going on in, in, in the Hebrew Bible that emphasizes that there are times when you should not look at things. Um, that vision is maybe a, a suspect sense, like a misleading sense. And, um, and there's a turn and an emphasis toward words, toward um, speech, and also eventually text. Um, and so in, in, in Judaism's, I guess you could say, like maybe even epistemology, uh, like its forms of understanding knowledge, maybe even its fucking metaphysics, like how the world... Like, in the existence of the world, the existence of things you see is less 
maybe true, reliable, and real than, um, than words. And mm. that, of course, flies in the face of like, the vast majority of uh, ancient religions in the surrounding cultures, other than you know, the, the um, Aten example that, that you gave, Max. Um, and so that was really I, you know, kind of like throwing down the gauntlet um, by Israelite religion and Judaism and, and is like a huge theme um, in the books like where there's kings and prophets like the good kings destroy the idols and then the bad kings put the idols back up and then the prophets say oh God's gonna come fuck you up like Ahab because you put that idol up at the temple and then Ahab gets fucked up and like a good king comes and um, like restores or purifies Israelite worship to its um, you know back to its quote-unquote original sense of this God that, by the way, is not only invisible, but doesn't even really have a name that we can know. So it's, it's a lot of it's about knowledge and access. And I could say more about that kind of stuff, but maybe I'll like toss it to you to hear what you're interested in about that. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would say, uh, like, what's interesting to me is that there are nonetheless certain tensions there that are i think kind of get brought to the fore uh especially in christianity but but are still there in judaism like for example like you know so images are bad right but at the same time man in in genesis man is created in the the image image of god of of god right so so that's one example so like there is some sort of so god is inaccessible but at the same time we are somehow imprinted uh, with a, something. What? Like an, uh, the image of God. We're made in the image of God. They could have chosen so, a so lot of things, God. and they went with image. Very, you know, in the yeah. 26th verse <laughs> right. of Genesis, seems like a pretty significant choice. Right. And then there's also certain episodes in the Bible, like with the brazen bulls. Do you know about that? It still kind of creeps in well, somehow. Well, there's, you know I, what I mean? There's... What biblical scholars, like historians of ancient Israel religion, think was going on, that's like a whole other topic, because some of them, whatever, it's, I could, it would lead us quite astray. I can also, I, I pulled down in the meantime, it's Exodus 20, chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, it's, you know, worth throwing it out there, because Ten Commandments, you know, they have this, like, purchase also in, in, in the quote-unquote Judeo-Christian tradition and, and whatever. I'm going to translate on my own because the English one I'm looking at is like thou shalt, whatever. Um, Don't make for yourself a graven image, uh, nor any kind of uh, picture of anything that is in the heavens above or that's in the land beneath uh, or that is in the water or that is under the earth. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship them because I am your God um, and I am a jealous God who visits the sins of the fathers upon their sons and so on. so it's really interesting there because is it, and this has been a big debate in Judaism, are, like, are Jews not allowed to make sculptures, period? Or are they just not allowed to make um, sculptures or statues that are used in, in worship? And so here's like a kind of interesting and funny example. Um, Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher, um, Arabic writing philosopher of the medieval period, kind of like the great Jewish mind of the medieval period, one of the big things he did was he tried to 
make all these rules in the Bible, like put them into a, like an alphabetical index for everybody. And, and mm. part of that meant like figuring stuff out, like, well, what counts and what doesn't, um, you know, like is painting okay, you know? And mm. um, in Israel today, um, Maimonides is on the, I think it's the 100 shekel bill because it's a flat depiction. So it's like a picture of like a dude in a turban, you know? Mm. Um, on paper but he like I think that it was originally they were going to put him on a coin and they're like no that's graven because it's like three dimensional okay yeah yeah um, and it would go against his own rules to do that and that would like not work but it's you know you get what I'm uh, getting at here maybe not uh, maybe it's not that yeah you know I, I see what you mean so like there's this kind of yeah there's a development of like rules around what kinds of images are okay and what kind of images are not okay. And it's all about this, this danger that if you create images and also revere images or treat them in certain ways, then you run the risk of, yeah, offending God. Um, offending God and undermining like the, the unity of like the one God concept. And, and also like the covenant that a, the community has with God. So like the, the, the community as a whole, you're, you're threatening that. Uh, cohesiveness. The, well, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of what's, you know, so. And it's historical, like, and it's historical kind of fate as well. Because you you Israel gets punished when it, when it strays yeah. uh, in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And so then the last thing I'll say, and then I think this could be like a good lead in uh, to Christianity, is... In, like we talked uh, two episodes ago about apocalyptic traditions, traditions of like visions, right? So if there are Jewish visionaries in, in the prophets and then after the Bible, they see stuff. But uh, one major characteristic of that literature is the emphasis on obscurity. That like the closer you get to whatever something like cosmically true is, the less you can see it. It's going to be concealed by clouds and by, like, rainbows and by, like, angels have, like, wings covering their faces, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so there was an interesting uh, article I reread for this pod by mm-hmm. uh, an Israeli scholar named Moshe Hal- Halbertal, and he was talking about, just in general, you know, and th- this is true to, to the present, right, that the more space you have around you, right, the more power you have. Um, like, so th- think about uh, what he says. Um, uh, social status is expressed through varying degrees of privacy, through the expansive space surrounding a person in which access to others is restricted. A person's mm. status rises in direct proportion to the size of the personal space allotted to him. So if you think about a very rich person in Beverly Hills has like, you know, a, a, a giant opaque wall around their house. And then, you know, their house is set off very far from that. Um, and of course, you're not going to ever see them because they're going to be like inside, you know, they're like the innermost house of something that might have like gardens and all kinds of shit around it. Right. And by contrast, like a homeless person sleeping on the street has no, the lack of social status is uh, expressed in like, they have no privacy. Everyone can see them at all times. And like power yeah. in a certain sense, right, is, is how much can you conceal yourself or not from vision. And he gives this 
thing that ancient Persian kings had the custom that even on coins, their pictures would have them wearing full veils over their faces. Like you, like even the people cannot ever see the king's face, you know? And so that's one way of doing it. And Christianity went another way. How's that for a... Yeah, right. You know? So, so sure. And I, I just wanted to say before I, before I transition, I mean, it reminds me of like in ancient Israel, in the temple, I mean, you have the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, wh- whose access is like strictly regulated, right? And only the high priests could go in there. But when you get in there, it's like, what, what do you see? Nothing, right? I mean, there's not like an image of God. You don't get to go in there to see God, but you go in there and like the, the closer you get, the kind of, um, you don't you don't get that privilege of of like casting your eyes on on the divine yeah. in that sense. So that's very interesting. You, you hear, but yeah, listen, and yeah, and, and so it's like an auditory of a, in a verbal experience. I just want to make a plug. If anyone fucking shits on Reform Judaism, listen to this kid, Max. Yeah, the boy, the boy knows about the inner sanctum, the from those boring parts of the Bible. He knows that shit. So. For sure. Let it be I think I saw like a diagram somewhere. Yeah. But um, so anyways, um, in terms so Christianity, I mean, like this is, you know, obviously a massive 2000 year history. And I want to like gloss it as as efficiently as I can. So I want to talk about first um, early Christianity and then uh, the Reformation. Um, so in terms of early Christianity, what I think is key. So like, as you said, so like there's a very different idea uh, in Christianity because God uh, becomes a man who you can look at and see, and we have images of God um, in the form of Jesus, also in the form of God the Father. There's many pictorial depictions of God the Father in Christian art. So uh, that is, in many senses, uh, uh, a kind of big change from Judaism. But what I would say about Christianity, what's, what's key is that the Christianity kind of takes, in a lot of ways, the iconoclastic uh, ideas of Judaism and then kind of brings them into the, the... Whereas Judaism was like in this Near Eastern, Middle Eastern kind of context, brings them into hmm. like the Western Mediterranean context, hmm. which included, you know, not only like Roman uh, paganism, but also Greek philosophy. So, I mean, you know, you talked about uh, orality and text versus images, you know, famously in um, the Gospel of John, like the way they talk about Jesus's incarnation is... In the beginning was the, the word. word. Yeah. The word, right? So that's that's kind of sounds Jewish, but then the word, they it's, it's obviously because it's written in, in um, Greek, Greek uh, it's... It's logos, but that logos is also like a, a a term, a word, a concept with some like very important philo- Greek philosophical connotations to it, um, having to do with kind of like the the Re- kind of transcendent reason yeah. or logic of the universe, right? So, um, so it's kind of like it's it's this. It is, in a lot of ways, this kind of synthesis of of Greek philosophy and Jewish ideas about um, all sorts of ideas about religion. But let's focus on on icons. Right. So, I mean, in early Christianity, um, especially in like early Christian apologetics, people like Tertullian and Augustine, 
um, Augustine, Augustine. I can never decide <laughs> which way to say it. Um, you did it wrong. But I did it wrong. Well, I did it wrong once and right once. And the listener can decide which was which. Um, so, so, so there's a whole development of like iconoclastic literature and ideas in early Christianity. And specifically that has to do with um, Christian apologetics, which is like basically it's like high level intellectual debates between Christian intellectuals, like learned guys and uh, against like their pagan opponents who are also like very learned people, Latin, Greek. They're like trained in all the philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what I would just say in terms of this period. So like, what was the, the iconoclasm they, of the Christian um, like theologians? Oh, right. So, I mean, they oh, were like concerned your gods about icons, right? I mean, they were, yeah, like, so, so I'll, I'll get into that. But like, basically, yes, like whenever they could, whenever they could, they would destroy statues, like pagan, pagan idols and statues, right? When they, when they took control. But um, so, so there's kind of a dual, they like kind of generated an idea of what, what the problem with idols was, which was a dual problem. On the one hand, it's an epistemolog epistemological problem, which is familiar from Judaism, which is that like by worshiping a graven image, um, you are worshiping the wrong God. Like it distracts you from worshiping the proper God. And this gets into like the, the kind of, you know, very interesting um, kind of fascination of Christians with like this body versus spirit um uh, and and the relationship letter. yeah okay, go I, for it yeah i was just gonna say like there's also um the in, in corinthians two corinthians it says you know the like the letter kills and the spirit brings life isn't that the, the how that quote goes something like that yeah so like they're saying like there's this there's this dichotomy between the word or the spirit, which is like what gives you life. And they're being very explicit there, right? So this is like by, you know, by being a Christian, you get access to eternal life. That's and, what makes Christianity spirit. a true religion as opposed to false religions. Well, right? uh, but also which, it's, 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 a, it's a big put down of Judaism, which is they're saying Judaism is trapped in the word. In, in like law, this obsession with all the laws of the covenant and all this stuff is like the word that that doesn't give you eternal life you know it, it, in, a, in an eternal right. sense it, it kills you and you have to you have to get beyond the word in order to to get the like eternal life that that christ promises that's all fair enough but in terms of like the 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 question of idols and iconoclasm they were not necessarily at least most of the stuff i read has been it's it's, it's more from a later period like they're kind of polemics against Judaism, like you're talking about from, from Paul, like people like Paul were, were writing um, polemics against Judaism. Like I've, I'm more familiar with people like Tertullian or Augustine who were writing against pagans. So like they're very much carrying on, I would say in a lot of important ways, like the Jewish iconoclastic tradition. And I just want to say like, so, so, so there's an epistemological problem, which is that they're distracting from, from the, you know, reverence for the true God, for the true religion. And then secondly, idols are a source of vice. So Tertullian wrote um, about spectacles, basically. So like including like theater plays and stuff. So like about gazing your eyes and it like seduces you into this world of the flesh and it turns you into this hedonist, right? 
Um, so it's like not only does it does so so like idols not only um, give you like wrong spiritual ideas, but they also turn you into a bad person and turn you into this like fleshly person, right? Like they um, they immerse you too much in in the mater- the material world. Yeah, and and so I do want to say that there is this tension here that you can see. Um, which I think partially existed in Judaism. I'm not so sure, which is like the idea between, okay, so idols are, idols are bad because the gods they depict don't exist on the one hand. And then on the other hand, idols are bad because the gods do exist and they're evil and actively harmful. Mm, yeah. They're demons, like literally demons. Demons exist. Paganism is the worship of demons. Um, and so this, like all this kind of stuff comes back in the reformation later on. Uh, so that might be a good transition point. Oh, okay. Um, can I say one more thing about, um, go for it. Yeah. Early Christianity before, before you leave it. So uh, uh, an ironic thing is that a guy, an intellectual who was like really big in my journey was like one of Max's advisors, this guy named Martin J. Um, and he wrote a big old book called downcast eyes. That's like kind of like an intellectual history of vision in the West. And Max, what he was saying was that, and I, this may not have been on like the theologian level, but that um, this is like a quote, Christianity's faith in the corporeal incarnation of the divine and human form um, led to a belief in the, the visible sacrament and the visible church and the power of sight in making the Christian story available to the hordes of non-believers sorry, new believers from non-Jewish backgrounds. So that there was like a practical element too, though, to like, to make some use of vision and sight. And of course, I feel like in, in any art history class, right, they show you the images of Apollo and then they show you the images of Christ and you're like, and you see that there was kind of like a conscious effort to make some continuity there to kind of maybe smooth the transition. Right. So that's a, that's a really good point, And I'm glad you brought that up. So, so like, they're not just continuing the iconoclastic tradition of saying like no graven images, no images whatsoever. Instead, they're saying images serve a certain purpose, definitely not as objects of worship as fetish objects, you could say. Right. But, um, as pedagogical instruments. Mm, yeah. Right. And so this becomes like, we're, we're skipping over this, but there's a controversy in Eastern Christianity, uh, around icons, of of course, like if you're familiar with Orthodox Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, you know that they they venerate icons. They do not worship icons. It is a distinction which might sound silly to people, but it was based on lots of very learned philosophical folks getting together and talking about these questions for centuries in their Greek nuanced language and figuring out the difference. <laughs> Um, so yes, so Christians basically become the, the, the kind of solution that comes about is like, it's okay to use images to bring people into the fold, to teach them basic concepts. Um, but the real way you access, um, salvation and you enter into, into this religion, religious community is like through sac- through the sacraments, right? So, the, so it is like in a sense like there is a really important distinction between the corporeal realm and like the transcendent realm but like what's at the core of christianity is that like the transcendent realm the logos the word became flesh so that there's this specific Mm, 
that's a big kind of wormhole between the two, <laughs> which you, so you can like access it, right? And it has to be through the institution of the church. Right? So, like, church don't eat any body. cracker. Eat this cracker. And that no, but I'm serious. Like, like it's not like don't look at any picture, but like you know, um, but like you know, certain parts of the material world will lead you. Like, just as Christ became, like he went from divinity to flesh, and we're trying to get you from flesh to divinity. Right, and I mean, I think that like yeah, look, people can see can like look at that and say. Uh, poke holes in it and say it's ridiculous but um i i i personally find it very fascinating the way they yeah they're kind of like i don't think it's ridiculous at all yeah okay um your crackers joke no Um, i'm just trying to put it into the parlance of the common man you know and for sure okay (laughs) for sure um okay so let's let's skip over a few like a little over a thousand years and um talk about the reformation because i think this is like a very key point um, in the history of iconoclasm and how kind of religious iconoclasm eventually becomes this, um, a, like a modern revolutionary kind of iconoclasm. So, um, because the Reformation was both a religious movement, but also, uh, a kind of period of political upheaval and political contestation. And so I want to be clear and like kind of get down to basics in the beginning. So like the the Protestant reformers are criticizing the Catholic Church, right? right. And what are they criticizing? Crackers. They're criticizing all sorts of cra- the crackers. They're definitely very very interested in the crackers. One of the most important topics in the Reformation is like what is happening with the bread? Like what is 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 there a presence is there like a material presence of Christ's body in the bread? Does transubstantiation happen? Um, there's all sorts of fine distinctions that different like kinds of of um, different kinds of Protestants or flavors kind of make um, from like this is purely symbolic to like well it's not like literally you're eating Christ but there's some kind of like philosophical distinction based on you know Aristotelian concepts um, we don't have to get into that but like this whole kind of question that. Um, Augustine and people like that and Tertullian were talking about in early Christianity come back to the fore about like what is the relationship between these material objects that are like part of our religious practice and like the the basic idea that like our religion is a transcendent immaterial religion so all these ideas come back and they're looking at the Catholic Church and saying there's all this stuff that's been added right like all this all this kind of like layers of veneer have been added and we need to like scrape all that away to get back to like the original truth of early Christianity. Right. And like a lot of that had to do with, um, physical images with icons. and like these physical images for ex- with icons, like, well, we didn't in the West, they didn't really have icons per se, but they had like images and statues of saints, especially, and the cult of the saints was like a hugely important part of medieval Christianity. And these came under criticism and they said, well, this is like, how is this not idolatry? If you're bowing before a saint, before a wooden statue of like some saint, 
like and asking it for something how is that not superstition and idolatry how is that not a total deviation from the true religion so that was the basic theological point can, can um, i in jump so many words can i jump Go in and just uh, give the words some flesh here um just so like just to put some yeah. p- pictures in people's minds like you know godfather 2 the fucking procession you know through like i guess little italy you know uh, uh, um i don't it, was that mary or, or was it um I don't know. Or, or like, um, you know, Mary, the but... version of, of Guadalupe, like um, in, in, in Mexico City, um, like these forms of worship where um, uh, I think like maybe from a, the perspective of critique, they could call them icons, but where, you know, whether it's a statue or like, uh, you know, some sort of three dimensional representation of especially not Jesus. And, and so it, what's interesting is a lot of people associate like destroying statues. Like remember when the Taliban destroyed those giant statues of Buddha and Bamiyan in, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, two of the most famous like eruptions of like we're going to destroy a fuckload of statues. Excuse, excuse my language. I've been told to dial that back. Was, mm-hmm. um, well, as you mentioned, the, uh, the iconic, like a lot of, um, images were destroyed in the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople by other Christians in that controversy that, that we were skipping over. But also in England, in, in Reformation England, I forgot, um, is it even, maybe it's not St. Paul's, but like in one of the major cathedrals of, of, of England, if like every, you just see these empty niches uh, or like, you know, where there had been a statue or um, a painting uh, or in even like stained glass windows that were knocked out, and now it's just like a bare stone wall or uh, wood, you know, base because the Protestants like were ripping all that out. Um, so it was. It, 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 I'm I'm trying to like you know give pictures of like the social reality of these debates was very. Um, Yes, absolutely. So, so in certain cases, in during the Reformation, in a, in a variety of different places, including England, um, also places like Netherlands and France, um, there were popular uprisings where people just kind of got rioted. They rioted and they went and they toppled statues and burned them and destroyed them and all that kind of stuff. Right. In other cases, where the Reformation was. Um, a top-down affair where like the ruler of the territory decided you know he wanted he or she wanted to be um, a Lutheran or reformed or whatever it was done in a very orderly fashion so there was this distinction there so I just wanted to say that so like in and that's something we're seeing right now mm-hmm. right uh, so sometimes like the statue is kind of pulled down in at 6 a.m. with a crane and sometimes it's pulled down by a cheering uh, crowd of protesters, right? Um, so, so that's important. And like, also, you know, there were cases where rulers were like too enthusiastic and like getting rid of everything, um, and they faced kind of popular. So there are other places where like there was popular resistance to iconoclasm from the rulers, right? Um, so there were lots of different cases. And I and and one important thing to note is that like in churches where it was done in a more orderly fashion. Um, they didn't necessarily like get rid of everything. It wasn't like we need to get rid of all these idols. What they did was they would do something like if there's a if there's paintings of saints, they would scrape off their faces. So you could still yeah, see so crazy. 
you could still see that they were there, but you knew like, but we like, so the point is like, we purified it. It's okay now. It's not like you can't look at anything, but it's more like we have, we have removed the harmful parts of this, but like also it's important for you to see that they have been removed. So you like, you, you are aware of the vice, but you are, you're also seeing the, ab- the, the absence of the, sorry, right. Right. And so that, so then there's this kind of divergence and, and one thing to mention, I mean, just if you're interested that like, um, you know, Lutheranism was kind of like more moderate in its iconoclasm and like more reformed people like Calvinist kind of traditions or religious groups were more, went further with iconoclasm and then like the more radical reformation, like Anabaptists and stuff were the most enthusiastic about destroying, um, about destroying statues. And then, you know, you have this divergence where like you have this development of a new kind of church architecture and and design in Calvinism where it's like totally austere. And like, it's something that it comes down to us today. If you've ever been to a church, that's like totally like blank white walls, very simple. Like that's the kind of way you access transcendence in this space. And then on the other hand, like a very like huge development um, and articulation of a, a visual culture in the church in, in the Catholic Church, where as as a as a kind of response to the Reformation, they kind of upped the ante with yeah. their uh, visual culture and and basically like if you go to and this is like especially um, in Baroque architecture, like if you go into churches, it's no longer like Renaissance art where it's like a it this is like this art represents kind of transcendent values like Baroque architecture is like the, the, the ideal is verisimilitude where it's like, this is literally like, this looks so much like heaven that like when you first look at it, it's, it's like being in heaven. And we're reminding you that like, we are the institution that gives you access (laughs) to that. So that's like Bernini and yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's dope. And so then, the last thing I want to say about the early modern period uh, was when the, this period is also when the Renaissance happened. And that's when in the West, there's a revival of monumental architecture. Like there, there still, there had been monumental architecture in, in the medieval West, but like the idea of building public monuments and sculptures of exemplary people, mm. like as an ideological tool was revived, right? So especially like the best example is equestrian monuments. So like emperors would be, have equestrian statues of themselves built in ancient Rome. And that was brought back in certain places in, in well, Europe. And like Flor- Particu- in Florence, there's that like, po- like Palazzo where there's a bunch of like both mythic figures, but also like important citizens like the Medici who like, you know, have a perfect example. Yeah, so that's like that's a that's a Republican example, but then there's like the imperial example, like in France and places like um, like monarchical, the, the kind of the princes in in Italy, like uh, where they had equestrian monuments built of themselves to say like we're bringing back the values of the Roman Empire as opposed to the Roman Republic, right? Um, mm. So so that's the kind of time like when this kind of tradition of building public statues of like historical figures was brought back and like that's still what we have now and is what is being questioned um, in this current moment 
um, to some extent, it's like, well, should certain monuments exist or like should any of them exist at all? 